This is Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. Yay! We're together again! It's, uh, yeah, it's the crew in the flesh today. In the flesh. In our murder nook. In our murder nook. It's been two weeks. Yeah, so. Since our last episode. And. Yeah, we're finally together again. Just How nice. is it that time feels like it goes by so quickly during the day, but then it's like this is dragged on, I feel. I feel yeah. like two weeks of us not doing stuff together. It's been longer than that because it's like it, time feels different and this feels different when we're not together. Mm-hmm. It's been like six weeks since we've seen each Yeah, time. I know. What? Yeah, we it's been two back-to-back back remote recordings. Oh my god, you guys. I know. That's not okay. not okay. Right? That's why I was like, we have to do in-person recording. Because I was like... Well, I think because we're in person, we don't have wine tonight. No. But we do have some wobbly pops. So I think we should have a cheers. Because we are finally together. I missed you, ladies. Cheers. A lot's happened since uh, we were last with you. Right. (laughs) Um... In the world as far as crime goes and i mean i think we all are pretty familiar with the fact that that's an ongoing thing right you know as every day every day day. like i can't believe how much just our city is seeing like yeah increased gun violence and shit like that how many homicides are we at now for the year we're we're well over a dozen i don't even oh no we're we're over a dozen we're in the 20s for sure we're in the 20s now for sure absolutely holy crow you guys i um actually right before we started this i was browsing on facebook and saw um that a girl there was a girl was uh there was attempted an attempted abduction in strathmore what two two men tried to pull a girl into their vehicle she got away but oh my god God. that's crazy it it happens here in calgary too right so i and let's talk about that actually because i have a personal experience with that oh is that right yes i do and in the in the moment i didn't think anything of it like i had that wherewithal about me to be like no i'm fine so i'm sitting well, I wasn't sitting, I was standing waiting for the number 44 bus stop. I was living at my mom's place at mm-hmm. the time and it's pouring rain. Mm-hmm. I have an umbrella. I've got like the proper, this car pulls up in front of the bus stop and it's only me. And he rolls down his window and he says, Hey, where are you going? I can give you a ride. You can get out of the rain. And I was like, no, 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 I'm okay. And he's like, no, seriously, you're going to be waiting forever for this bus. You can just get in my car and I'll take you wherever it is you need to go. And I was like, Actually, it's coming right around the corner, and yeah. it was coming right around the corner Thank because God. Brittany never waited for a bus. Brittany yeah. would chase buses, yeah. but she would not wait for buses. <laughs> and so I was like, no, I'm good. I'm getting on the bus. And I thought to myself afterwards, I was like, he was very adamant and pushy about wanting to give me yeah. a ride. Right? I was like, I wonder what would have happened yeah. if I would have said, you know what? Yeah, for sure. Let me get in. I need to go because I think I was going to South Center to work or something yeah. like that. You made the right choice. Anyway, has anyone else had an experience like that? So there was this one time that I was like, oh my God, I would have been like eight. So my sister would have been nine or 10. And our friend Samantha was with us. She would have been, I think she was a year older than my sister. So like 10 or 11. And uh, we lived in um, this, an area of Dartmouth called Wallace Heights. And the next community over is called Shannon Park. It was like dark out. And we decided we like, we decided the playgrounds in Wallace Heights weren't good enough. We wanted to go to the one at Shannon Park Elementary School. So we walked. It probably wasn't, it was maybe like a 15, 20 minute walk. Like it wasn't that far. So we're walking down this alley behind the old community center and it's like a gravel road. There's like a big fence around um, the property and then trees. And there was a hill to the right, which was the road. And it went up to the um, Bay of Fundy. Um, so we were walking on this gravel road and this red car pulled up beside us and the guy rolls down his window and we're three young girls and we were just like he stops and he's like hey and we were like hi and he was like i have something for you and we were like uh okay so he like tries to hand us a bunch of papers and none of us would take it obviously like even before I was old enough to know better. Yeah. I knew better. So we were just kind of like, no, it's okay. And he was like, come on, like, 
like just take them or whatever. And we were like, no, 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 we're good. And then he finally threw them at us and drove away. They were just a bunch of like ripped out pages from a um a porn magazine. But like oh we my don't God. know if he's gonna try and pull us in. Like yeah. you don't know. Guess what? But still that's dirty in itself going up we, to kids with porn. Yeah. We like, still went to the fucking park yeah. and played in the park. <laughs> and we did our thing. And then we were walking back from fucking the park fearless, talking right? about the incident. And we were like, that was not a good situation yeah so we saw a cop car we flagged him down we gave him the details and we went home that's crazy jesus what about you christy have you ever had an almost abduction story probably i just don't remember (laughs) repress 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 yeah i get that let's not go down any of those rabbit holes tonight yeah um so you guys i would be um i do want to mention obviously i know it's been on everybody's mind um about the school shooting in Texas and just to give a little bit of importance to to that situation and what it's done to to so many families down there I mean everybody says hopes and prayers I mean although we send those we know it's not enough um there's not much that can be said at this point about it there's nothing that like no word I think in the English language that really emphasizes like how tragic this is we need it to be enough at some point yeah. absolutely yeah. the right. whole situation just it's shitty well it's all just shit and it's one of a dozen incidences with guns in the united states over mm-hmm. the last two weeks yep. so yeah there was one today megan i believe yes there was uh the news i read this news article just now actually yeah, just at least four people dead at least four people dead and multiple people injured in shooting at a tulsa oklahoma medical building story still developing wow and it almost happened in toronto all like a few days after what happened in texas really but they shot the guy dead outside of a school wow. before he was able to Good. Do any damage. Yeah, good. At least that happened in that situation. I yeah. mean, what is it with the uh, authorities in the Texas situation? It took them, they were outside the door for like 30 minutes or something like that. She had to shoot out with him before he barricaded himself inside. And yeah. Yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't get the correct, like, they, I guess they couldn't get a command proper or something like that, like from their superior and so it's just oh, nobody made a move and like just so underprepared like how he can you prepare for cops. that but like, like he shot two cops yeah but i know that's something difficult to to be prepared for but yeah, like you absolutely. are in a position where you need to do better than that come absolutely. on like these pups are arresting parents that are trying to to get into the school risking their lives so that they mm-hmm. can save their kids and they're arresting these parents yeah like, I'm awful. sorry, but I don't fucking blame them. And then you expect teachers to be human shields, but you also expect that children are just going to have to grow up understanding that this is just what happens well, and yeah, to right. prepare for it. There's no fucking childhood for anything. No, it's know. not. And it's sad that we've gotten to a point where, you know, that's what you have to do because that's what you have to worry yeah. about. You yeah. shouldn't have to worry about that, you know? Yeah. You know, I love I love my kid to pieces, I hate that this is the world that I that he has to grow up in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you guys, uh, to our listeners, we've had a little blip in our schedule today. So uh, you may have been expecting to hear from Miss Brittany. I can assure you that you still will hear much from her this episode because she likes to fucking talk. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> but yeah, I do. There's no lie in that statement. Thank you guys for joining us today for another episode of Homebrew Murder Crew. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, so this is an episode that I've had in the vault for a while. Uh, not going to lie, though, I just finished writing it today. <laughs> it's probably pretty well known. But I'm going to get into it. So get it. In, I mean, get into it. Get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. On August 11th, 1928, Camp Madelco opened. It is heavily, it's in a heavily wooded area of Lacoste Grove, Oklahoma. Lacoste Grove is in Mays County, slightly northeast of Tulsa. Camp May Delco spanned 240 acres and it was owned by Tulsa's, Tulsa's 
Girl Scout Council. And oh. in 1928, the camp ran for two weeks uh, for a cost of $5 for the first five days or $9 for all 10. There was a total of 20 buildings. I'm air quoting buildings because we're going to find out pretty soon that they weren't actually buildings. Um, complete with plumbing and running water. Sounds like a dream. Camp activities included swimming, CPR training, archery, pathfinding, bridge building, oh bird God. study, insect life, and leadership skills. Okay, that sounds so, so fun. Did you guys ever go to camp as a kid? I did brownies, I, I think. I did yeah. Camp Catacazoo. Oh, Camp Kiwanis. Yeah. You're not ever going to want to send your kids to camp after. Oh, sorry. But camp is so, well, know. you know what? I take that back. I went to band camp too. Oh. So I've got all, I've got the range of experience with yeah. camps. I never <laughs> went to camp, unfortunately. And I played the flute. Nice. Oh my oh, God. It's my time in band camp. Yeah. It's my best running joke. And okay. longest. <laughs> As she flips her hair back. <laughs> a long running joke about me. <laughs> So the camp was thriving. A few short years after opening, the camp underwent a name change to Camp Scott, as it uh, remains to this day. It's Ew. still in existence? Yes. Wow. We'll get to that. Over the first almost five decades of it opening, Camp Scott was host to many major events including the Ranch Festival, Water Carnival, and Oklahoma Academy of Sciences annual meeting. And even at one point, holding the State Conference of 1947, Camp Scott was never low on attendance. In 1957 alone, an estimated 4,606 girls attended the two-week camp, continued to teach kids skills and greatness of the outdoors. In 1977, Camp Scott was celebrating 49 years as a keystone of the Tulsa-based Magic Empire Girl Scouts Council. In April 1977, during an on-site cadet weekend, a camp aide named Michelle Hoffman returned to her camp to find it had been ransacked. A box of donuts she had brought from home lay empty leaving behind only crumbs and a few tiny notes which read one read kill written on it repeatedly just kill 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 all over this piece of paper oh good um most of them said that but the fourth note read we're on a mission to kill three girls michelle took these notes to the camp director as um as well although they were alarming I would say they certainly were alarming. Yeah, I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the camp director said she'd check, check into it. Summer camp is full of pranks and the obvious ghost stories. Michelle later learned a few girls at the camp had confessed to writing the notes, and it was assumed to be a prank, and the notes were discarded. Two months later, on June 12th, 1977, it was opening day for the Camp Scott's annual summer camp for the Girl Scouts. An estimated 130 girls of varying ages from all over Tulsa, Tulsa were dropped off at the Magic Empire Council of Girl Scouts headquarters in Tulsa. They then boarded a caravan of buses and made the 80 mile drive outside of Tulsa to Camp Scott. Ready for fun and adventure. For many, it was not their first summer at Camp Scott. Many of the girls knew each other and already knew each other already. And as young girls do, they flocked to their friends. For one young camper in particular, though, 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner, who went by Denise and who is noted as being the only black camper in the group, it was her first time going to Camp Scott and seemed to not she didn't know anybody else and she was reluctant to be going so 15 year old michelle hoffman who we heard about earlier she was the one that found the notes uh she was a first time counselor she had just aged out of being a camper she took notice of denise 
noting that she seemed scared. Michelle told Denise all the great things about the camp, promised Denise's mother that Denise would use the camp phone to call home the next day if she, was, if she still wanted to go home. Michelle then rode with Denise on the bus to Camp Scott. So the girls arrived at the camp between 3.30 and 4 p.m. Camp Scott consisted of 11 different campsites, and each campsite had roughly eight tents mm -hmm. and a red barn, a staff house, a ranger's house, a health center, director's office, a cook's cabin, a great hall, and a swimming pool. Wow. A swimming pool. Yeah. In 1977, a swimming pool. A swimming pool right next to a lake. That's definitely swanky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right next to a creek. A creek. Yeah. A creek. Yeah. So the 11 camps were all named after Native American tribes. And each child was assigned to a camp based on their age. The youngest of the girls this year were assigned to Kiowa Camp which was which consisted of eight 12 by 14 canvas tents set up on a wooden platform that held three to four cots each one of these tents were the counselor's tent the kiowa counselors this year were carla wilhite she was 18 susan ewing she was 18 and d elder she was 20. In total, 27 campers were assigned to the Kiowa camp and split between the seven remaining tents. Tent 8 um, of Kiowa. It was located at the end of a horseshoe figuration on the complete opposite side from the counselor's tent, but closest to the shower room. It was difficult to see the tent due to the dense, dense forest because it was kind of like tucked away in a little like forested area. And in between the tent number eight and the counselor's tent, the only other tent that would have had any visibility of tent number eight, tent number eight was there was forest between them. Mm. So it was essentially blocked. That's from, scary. It was like a blind like, yeah. kind of thing. So well, and how do you even know that that's actually a blind spot until something? Yeah, exactly. And which, did you already say which girls were in there? Not yet. Okay. Yet. So assigned to tent number eight. Uh, here it is. Here it is. Were the Patience. three youngest campers. Oh, oh no! All the campers. So ten-year-old Denise Milner, who we discussed earlier, she was the she was the one that was having a difficult time. As well as nine-year-old Michelle Gousset, who was a returning camper, um, as this would be her second year at Camp Scott. Michelle loved plants. Before leaving for camp, she had made her family promise to take care of her African violets while she was away at camp. How precious. That is so precious. And last but not least, the actual youngest of all campers, eight-year-old Lori Farmer. Lori, despite her age, was mature for her age. Her parents, Dr. Charles and Sherry Farmer, were excited for Lori to attend her first year at camp. They even had made plans to surprise Lori for her ninth birthday, which was on June 18th. The trio, who had never met prior to June 12th, 1977, became fast friends. Oh, cute. So on the first night of camp, while everybody was getting sent, uh, settled in, after dinner, a thunderstorm rolled in. This forced all the campers to retreat to their tents for the night. Denise, Michelle, and Lori decided to write letters to their loved ones back home while the storm bore down on them. Michelle's for Michelle's letter, she wrote, Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it's storming. Me and my tent mates are the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Aww. That's so cute. That's adorable. Yeah. Lori, who was the youngest of the campers, wrote, Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Lacey, We're getting ready to go to bed. 
It's 7.45. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It started, it started raining on the way back from dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's hardly anything to do. Love, Lori. <laughs> Can so, I ask? So the last letter is the hardest to read considering what is going to happen next. But Denise wrote, Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day it rained. I have three new friends named Glenda, Lori, and Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Cassie and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. <sighs> oh my God, my heart. These letters are the very last words of these three beautiful, lovely young girls. Once they had finished writing these letters with not much more to do while it stormed down on the camp, all the campers went to sleep. The events that follow are a little bit disturbing and a little bit frustrating at the same time, but I'm going to tell you guys like bits and pieces of what other people had reported, but I'm going to do it in uh, chronological order. Okay. So sometime after 10 PM, so it was 7:45 when they were writing the letters, it was probably like nine o'clock ish by the time they went to bed. It doesn't say anywhere what time they actually went to bed, but eight, nine. So sometime before 10 PM, a counselor at the Camanche camp, which was just on the other side of a forest, just forest, forested area from Kiowa. So this is the camp I was telling you about that is the closest to Kiowa camp, but there's a bit of like a forest between yeah. them. Okay. So the counselor from Comanche camp, so she reported seeing a light in the forest moving north towards the Kiowa camp. She was not sure what she saw, so she did nothing. At 10 p.m., D. Elder, who was one of the counselors at Kiowa, made a tent check of the all the other camps, like the, all the tents, and found everything was fine. Around midnight, Carla Wilhite escorted a few girls from the toilet back to their tent. So this, just to remind you, the toilets are right next to tent number eight. At 1.30, Carla gave tent six a warning to quiet down. At the same time, she recalled hearing what she describes as a low guttural sound coming from the trees behind the tents. She assumed it was an animal, but when she shone her light toward in the direction of the noise, it stopped. She returned to bed, but said she could continue hearing the noise intermittently throughout the rest of the night until she fell asleep again. Ew, so yeah okay <laughs> around 3 a.m there are reports of girls from two other camps being woken up by noises one reported hearing a single scream they said that it was around 3 a.m but it could have been around one second girl at, the, at another one of the other camps said she'd heard a girl crying out mama mama oh no Around the same time, someone was walking through Kiowa camp, reaching into the tents and grabbing purses, glasses, stuff like that. One girl in tent seven said that she had seen a man pull back the tent flap to tent number seven, shine, his shine a light in, stared into the tent for a few minutes before closing the tent and moving towards tent eight. Just to remind you, this is a Girl Scouts camp. It's yeah. all girls, girls yeah. female counselors, female campers. It's all girls. Yeah. Um, but they're young. These are the youngest girls yeah. in, in the, the entire camp. camp. Yeah. And so she, nothing was, obviously nothing was done. So those are the last of the weird things that were reported throughout the night. So Carla Wilhite's alarm sounded at 6 a.m. She wanted to shower before the girls woke. So she made her way towards the staff house, which was located near 
Quaypaw camp. As she traveled towards the staff house, she was walking down a path and she noticed something lying on the ground in the fork ahead of her on the trail. As she moved closer to investigate, she discovered it was the body of a girl lying face up and naked from the waist down. Jesus. She immediately returned to her tent to wake Dee and Susan, and they went to check on the tents. Dee started at tent eight and found all three girls missing in the tent in disarray. Carla immediately ran to the nurse's quarters to tell her what she had found. And then she ran to the camp director's house to inform Barbara Day, who was the camp director, camp director's wife, I believe. Meanwhile, the, the nurse drove to the place where the body had been found. She checked for signs of life and found none. They also were able to identify that this was Denise Millman. I assume that it was easy for them to identify because yeah. she was the only black camper. Yeah. Her hands were tied behind her back and she had a pretty severe head injury. Barbara's husband, Richard Day, arrived and began searching for the two remaining girls through the surrounding woods. Um, and he came upon some sleeping bags that he found bundled up on the ground. Next to the sleeping bags was a discarded red flashlight. The closer inspection of the sleeping bags, he found the bodies of Lori and Michelle tucked in the bottom of the sleeping bags. Oh, that's what I was worried about. Barbara contacted Highway Patrol Officer Harold Barry, who went by Harry. So Harry was the first officer on the scene. He reported finding one set of boot prints leading from Kiowa camp to the location of Denise Milner's body. Unfortunately, at this point, they hadn't like tape roped off the area and preserved the scene. By 8 a.m., Sheriff Glenn, who went by Pete Weaver, requested help from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, the OSBI. Families were notified of an accident at Camp Scott and were told to come get their kids. An accident. No mention of who or what had happened. You know what? To yeah. not have like that's what they mass said. chaos. That's yeah. probably a better idea. But they brought, they didn't, like they had everybody, all the parents come and gather their children. Yeah. And so it's like, what's happening? What's yeah. happening? Everybody in our frenzy. No mention of who was involved in the accident or what yeah, kind of okay. accident it was. So as panicked parents began to arrive at the camp, Denise, Lori, and Michelle's families quickly were informed of the horrible discovery and news of the murders at Camp Scott spread like wildfire. During the initial investigation, it appears that the killer had approached from the rear of Tent 8, unhooked the back flaps, because again, it's just a canvas tent, yep. and entered through the back. It is believed that Michelle and Lori had both been bludgeoned inside the tent based on the blood spatter on the canvas walls and the wooden floor. They were both sexually assaulted. It appears the killer attempted to clean up by using their bed sheets and mattresses. But one single boot print was left behind, and it was a size nine and a half. No fingerprints were found in the tent. I was going to say, yeah. it sounds like we're dealing with a dumbass here. Yeah. If you really think you can clean up that yeah. of blood with sheets and whatnot. But yeah. I mean, he got rid of the On fingerprints. Yeah. yeah, but he got rid of the fingerprints. So yeah. can he really say that? Exactly. <laughs> it is believed that Denise then had her hands tied behind her back and had a pre-made gag made with just rips up to pieces of fabric stuffed into her mouth before she was led to where her body was eventually found. When she, you say pre-made, yeah. like he brought it with him? He brought it with him. Okay. Yes. Not that he yeah, which, which shows intent. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I yeah. asked. Or premeditation. Premeditation. Right? Yeah, yes. that's why I asked. Yeah. She was also sexually assaulted, mm. bludgeoned, and strangled to death. There was also duct tape found at the scene and on the bodies. Um, semen was found on all three of the bodies. 
and a fingerprint was found on the lens of the red flashlight that was found next to Michelle and Lori. So at this point, they're, they're, they're guessing that the murders were premeditated as the killer brought with him, with them, the pre-made gag, nylon rope, and duct tape that was used to bind the three girls. How do you think they knew it was pre-made? Probably because of the type of material. Yeah, that was made of. yeah. There was two different types of knots used as well, which mm. doesn't really mean much, but. Um, well, so, I don't know. There's a lot of intricate knots out there. Yeah. The world. <laughs> yeah. Hello, macrame. <laughs> In a piece of the duct tape that was used to bind one of the girls, they also found a hair that did not belong to any of the three girls. In the days following, the evidence led investigators to various locations around Camp Scott, a nearby cave as uh, nearby caves as well as a nearby ranch named the Schroff Ranch, where Jack Schroff told investigators that earlier in the week, so prior to the camp opening and the murders, food and other items had been stolen from his home. The stolen items included duct tape, beer, and rope. The this rope, is so scary. The rope was similar to that found near the bodies. Oh my god. That's... They also searched, like I said, the nearby caves. In one cave, they found grocery items, including beer cans, newspapers from the Tulsa world, two photographs, duct tape matching the kind found on the girl's body. It was evident to, evident to the authorities that someone had been hiding out inside the cave. Oh, and on I'm one so of the creeped out on one of the cave walls was written in black. It appears to be spray paint. It could be just like um, charcoal from yeah, a fire. fire yeah. The killer was here. Bye bye fools. I will post a photo of it on our socials. Oh my God. What kind of an individual? Oh my God. Soon after his initial investigation, Sheriff Weaver told the media that he was already favoring a theory that one person a man was responsible for these murders. This man, Gene Leroy Hart, he became the prime suspect. Gene Leroy Hart. In 1996, he abducted two pregnant women from outside a nightclub, drove them to the forest out of low-cost grove, and brutally beat and raped them. Taped up their mouths and their noses with tape, like essentially trying to suffocate them, trying to kill them and left them alone in the woods. They both managed to untie their bindings and get to safety. Both women survived. Oh, good. Also, just a reminder to any ladies out there, if you ever do have duct tape across your mouth, use your tongue. Lick it. Yeah. Lick the shit out of it. <laughs> These two women and their description of the man helped to the eventual capture of Jean Leroy Hart. He was sentenced to three 10-year prison terms to be served concurrently, but was paroled after 28 three, months. Three 10 years? So it's only 30 years? Yeah. But concurrently. So yeah. all at one time. Yeah. Oh, so he could have really only served 10. Yeah. But he was paroled after 28 months. Oh, good. Yeah. After his parole, he started his career, his short-lived career, as a burglar. He was captured during one of those burglaries and sentenced to roughly 308 years. What? Because he was on parole at the time for the rape and kidnapping charges. Oh, was, so wait, 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 yeah. wait, yeah, wait, yeah, yeah, wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Yeah. He got more. Well, it was because he committed a crime while he was on parole for okay. another crime. But okay, yeah, but, yeah. but so he got more for doing that than he got for yes. raping and almost murdering. Okay, yeah, sure. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So sometime in 1973, he was being returned to the Mays County Jail from a hearing at the Mays County Court. He escaped, but was quickly recaptured by police during the time that he was out he had committed three burglaries oh my god this man is yeah. just on a rampage 
Authorities returned him to the Mays County Jail, and there he was to be left to serve his sentence of 308 years for kidnapping, rapes, and now burglaries. And he did admit to these. He actually admitted to the rapes. He admitted to the attempted murder and to all the burglaries. Like when he was sentenced to those ten, those three ten-year terms concurrently. No, he when, admitted, or the, he admitted when he after. got the three hundred and eight years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, what a piece of. Sometime I'm. I believe it was three years after that. He escaped a second time. This time, it would take them a lot longer to catch him. And in 1977, he was still at large. They instantly launched a manhunt, another manhunt, for Jean Leroy Hart in connection to the murders of the three young girls. This manhunt would take 10 months. Was this based off of anything? Or was this just them trying to fit a piece of the puzzle in and... Um, so Jean Leroy Hart had been raised a mile from Camp Scott. Okay. He was. So there's just too many things that kind of fit together. Okay. Yeah. He was Native American Cherokee. It was believed his second escape that he was being helped by the people of a Cherokee community. They were help. They were helping him evade recapture. Oh, geez. This caused even more strain on an already strained relationship from the different peoples of Oklahoma. Well, mm-hmm. and if you're talking about a suspect that's indigenous, yeah. the history there yeah. there with authorities Absolutely. anyway is not trusted. Yeah. yeah and so- I mean, so you got to think about his community. He, they're, he's not telling the truth to his community, yeah. right? So... I can almost guarantee that. Like, when you want help and shelter from someone, you don't care them the whole yeah. truth or yeah. any of the truth, right? For sure. Yeah. That's so... That's sad. Ross Swimmer, principal chief of the Cherokee Nation in 1977, said, and I quote, these people were acting emotionally, simply trying to help out a fellow Cherokee, unquote. It was reported that the Cherokee people believed that OSBI was planting evidence and trying to frame Jean Leroy Hart for the murders. But not all felt that way. Two of the OSBI agents that were assigned to this case, Larry Bowles and Harvey Pratt, were both from the same tribe and they received help from a respected medicine man named Crying Wolf in the investigation. The pictures that were found in the cave were made public and a prison prison officer recognized the woman in one of the photos from a part-time job as a wedding photographer. As part of a photography course in prison, Jean Leroy Hart had helped develop the photos. And the caves and Camp Scott were within walking distance of Hart's mother's home. Okay, can I ask another, can I rephrase the first question I asked? Yeah. What physical evidence did they have to tie him? At the, oh, well, I guess they had like so, the, the hair and the semen, but I guess they could, the I answered testing, my own question Something there. that I yeah. forgot to mention too, and I forgot to write this in the article when I was on my way home, I was like, I remember to add this, is that one of the items that he was going through the tents and stealing at Camp Scott were, were prescription eyeglasses. And in the rapes that he committed in 1966, one of the things that he did was take their eyeglasses. That's called a signature. Yes. So that would be so. That was color. one of the other <laughs> things too. I believe that made them go, huh? Okay. Because I do believe that, uh, if I remember correctly, the sheriff that I mentioned above, what bowels? No, no, no. <laughs> I remembered that name. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Sheriff Weaver was also the sheriff that was there when he was arrested for like those. Yeah. So that's why that's part of the reason why the the Cherokee community also thought that he was trying to plant evidence because he had escaped essentially under his jurisdiction. Yeah, and they thought that Weaver was just trying to. It's you know, been a, it's yeah. been that yeah. exact battle for yeah. that long. Holy crap! Yeah. <laughs> this is just you know, one one individual, regardless of race or tradition or whatever, but one individual yeah. who's using that 
for his own game. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. taking advantage of that. He's taking advantage of his people, and, and that's and and putting wrong people, on every level, yeah, whether yeah. you're white, black, orange, red, indigenous, yeah, whatever. Putting, it doesn't matter. Putting, yeah, that you take advantage of anybody, yeah, your yeah. people especially. Yeah. So two weeks after the murders, a farmer reported that he had seen Jean Leroy Hart on a hillside. On further investigation, Agent Harvey Pratt found this formation of four fires and cigarette butts. As a Cherokee himself, Pratt recognized the formation, the cedar wood used, and the fact that cigarette filters were torn off as an indication of Native Indian smoke ritual. The butts also tested for the same O-type blood as heart. A boot print was also found that matched the size of the blood print in the tent, the 8.5. However, Jean Leroy Hart was known to have a size 11 foot. So that's kind this of doesn't weird. match. Yeah. No, but he he did escape, so he could just be wearing or the clothes that he was able to get. Two individuals. That's true. But they only found one set of footprints. Well then, yeah. But anyways, how do you make it fit? <laughs> yeah. So ten months into the manhunt, Agent Larry Bowles had been working. <laughs> with an informant in the Cherokee community and discovered that Hart was hiding out with a friend called Sam Pigeon, 50 miles east of Camp Scott. Pigeon was convinced of Hart's innocence and had let him live in his three-room shack for the previous eight months. What was I saying? He's yeah. a manipulative, oh, narcissistic yeah. criminal slash maybe serial killer. So these Cherokee people are of being course. taken advantage of just and as much. We're talking about 1977 here. Like, yeah, it, it was, well, it's still an issue today that indigenous people are looked at more closely than us white folk when it comes to crime. Yeah. It's already an ongoing issue for them. It's a daily it, struggle. It's not, it's not within the the realm of impossibility that they would be trying to railroad. Well, you also, you also have to remember crime. though, like this, this Cherokee um, tribe that is having his back yeah. is being lied to. So and they're his they, friends and family. Yeah, they're his friends and family. With. But I mean, you talk about chiefs and Absolutely, everything in these yeah. councils, they're the ones that are, are the ones that, you know, make yeah. the, the moves and everything like that. If they're yeah. deciding to completely protect them, protect him, uh, like that's why I said it, it's yeah. not surprising to me if he lied and you know but once you're in that battle especially back in 1977 yeah like you know that's well these are people that are under the impression that they're protecting their friend yeah yes. uh, their neighbor they're yeah. not they're yeah. not they have no idea that he's not to mention well, this guy that he lived with for eight murder. months you said eight months yeah. eight months yeah. lived with him thought he was innocent we yeah. didn't have constant People didn't have constant connection to yeah. news like we do now. So they didn't you know about all the evidence sit in a house that they had yeah. that linked, linked yeah. um, Hart to these crimes. Well, and the police aren't talking to the the Cherokee. They are talking to the Cherokee community. But do the Cherokee community trust what they're being told? Two of the OSBIs are actually from that. Oh, are they? Oh, tribe. you did say that. You yes. did say that. Sorry. You did so, say that. Uh, they're also friends of theirs well There's maybe so not friends of theirs but yeah. people from their community okay, yeah so on april 6 1978 osbi officers surrounded the shack and arrested Jean leroy hart <laughs> bowel stated that he cuffed hart he and while he was doing so he asked quote you killed those little girls didn't you unquote Hart's reply was apparently, quote, you'll never pin it on me, unquote. So Hart was tried in March 1979 and was represented by Larry Oliver from Tulsa, Oklahoma. His supporters defended him so aggressively that the victim's families needed police escorts in and out of the courthouse to keep them from being harmed. Jesus. The defense carefully 
dismantled the prosecution's case. The bloody footprints in the tent was too small to be hearts. The fingerprints on the flashlight was not a match. The swabs taken from the girls were not conclusive because they found semen. Again, DNA testing wasn't a big thing. So they did find semen, but it was reported that Jean Leroy Hart had had a vasectomy. So I guess that was a, a thing. Um, it was claimed that the hair was also heart, the hair that was found in the duct tape, but this could not be proved because, again, no DNA testing. It's 1977, 1978 at this point. The claimed evidence was being planted to frame Hart, and, partially, and it was partially motivated by racial factors. After hearing the evidence, the jury took only six hours to deliberate, and they found Jean Leroy Hart not guilty of the murders. Although the local sheriff pronounced him, himself 100% certain that Hart was guilty, the jury acquitted him, clearly believing he had been framed for the murders because of his Cherokee roots. Oh. So I also want to mention here that I know that this, it doesn't, I wasn't able to find this anywhere, but I can only speculate that during this trial, they weren't allowed to bring up his previous charges because that's yeah. a known thing. So again, they didn't know of his previous convictions for rape. Rape. Yeah. 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 But as he was a convicted rapist and escaped jail, he still had 305 years of his 308 year sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So he was locked up anyway. He was he locked just up anyway. wasn't being locked yeah. up for yeah. for that. Yeah, that so. there was no justice in mm -hmm. that. On June 4th, 1979, Hart collapsed and died of a heart attack after Bye. about an hour of lifting weights and jogging in the prison's exercise yard. Bye. That's what you were there for. You were there to die. Yeah. Through the years following the murders, the Camp Scott murders, as they're now known as, remained unsolved until last month, May 2022, when it was announced that in 2019, further DNA testing had been conducted on the evidence that was found at the crime scene, which very strongly suggested Gene Leroy Hart was the killer. Gotta love DNA. Yes. Mays County Sheriff, current Mays County Sheriff, Mike Reed, said, quote, unless something new comes up, something brought to light we are not aware of, I am convinced where, where I'm sitting of Hart's guilt and involvement in the case, unquote. At this point, Reed says that, quote, there's no suspect attached to this case that has not been excluded in one way or another other than Gene Leroy Hart. Whether it's through DNA, an alibi, or a polygraph test, whatever. Unquote. The latest, latest testing could not eliminate Hart, but it also wasn't 100,000% conclusive, but yeah. unfortunately... Those latest DNA's tests are the last ones that are ever going to be able to done because that was the last remaining testable evidence that could oh, wow. be used in this case. So as of now, as of 2022, the case is now closed yeah. because let's be real here. He did it. Yeah. Nobody so can ever... we do the math on this for a second? <laughs> Just for, because I'm curious. So How this happened... 1977. Yeah, 1977. So that's, excuse me, well, my, yeah, okay, use your calculator faster than Sorry. me, because I'm not using my brain cells, but that is a lifetime. A lifetime. You have more than one? Yeah, yeah I, I know, it's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> I have one for this and one for work. I share one <laughs> with my husband, so yeah. <laughs> one brain cell. Camp Scott was closed the day the bodies were discovered and never opened again. In the 1980s, the Girl Scouts sold the property. It now resides on private property by 
I could not find anywhere the name of the buyer. That's probably purposeful. It, yeah, yeah, it remains a hollow shell of what it once was. To this day, it remains untouched, taken over by nature itself. It is a popular site for paranormal investigators and true crime fanatics alike to visit. However, the camp remains on private property and is not open to the public. So people that, the videos that you find on YouTube of people trying through their camp now, because it's still there, like nothing was taken down. It remains exactly as it was the day that they abandoned it after the bodies were discovered like it's it like obviously everything is falling apart and decaying right. but like it remains exactly as it was nothing was changed that is and from the distortion like, so yeah, freeze frame in history stuck yeah. in time and the like that's crazy the tents now are being taken over by nature it's just wild you can search on youtube tours of like the camp scott i think the most recent one i found was in 2020 or 2019 like like it's still there exactly as it was so you can't though so anyway so what i was saying is the people that make these videos are essentially trespassing so yeah. don't think about going there unless you maybe uh, want to possibly get shot because I do think that in Oklahoma they have a rule where if you're trespassing, they can shoot you. <laughs> yeah. This so, is the state, so why don't we just talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder why the new private owners wouldn't have done anything mm -hmm. with that. Like, why would you buy that 240 Well, well who are the private owners? Yeah. Like, so is it a millionaire that wants yeah. to make money off of it one day or is it a family member? I don't member know because I struggling? wasn't able to find much on this. But we I know when it was sold? in the 1980s okay so i that's found such a long, that's such a long time ago yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. never yeah. changed owners no well here's the thing is is that well during my research i found one youtube of a news article where they were talking about the uh, city council voting in favor to turn the site of camp scott into a juvenile like a home for juvenile boys a permanent residence for juvenile boys and the surrounding communities are protesting it because it's too close to them i'm assuming at this point that the state maybe now owns the property okay where my mind went when you said that was so what we're just gonna repeat history yeah like that's where my mind went like i know yeah. it's a, like totally different scenario but well, i feel like you're going off of let's try with boys now yeah, yeah right yeah. Well, <laughs> the thing is, is that, exactly so like when you were talking about your experience with with yeah. the camp or whatever there was a there is also a boy scout camp yeah. that's located within the same general vicinity which remained open and i believe it's still open and operating so not day. part of the, the the 240 acres no it's, Scott. it's yeah it's separate yeah close. i mean there was even like newspaper articles where they were saying that like some of the boys from that camp were responsible for the murders but yeah i mean obviously that never nothing around yeah, about that yeah. was just people making speculations because when you don't have answers for 45 years all you can do is to speculate yeah. you know, and that's um, crazy like, to go that yeah. long and to, like honestly like he was 34 at the time of the murder so he would be at 79 so essentially still alive yeah and they wouldn't be able to try him again yeah because double jeopardy double, yeah so Dumber. I, said Dumber. I mean, I it's fine though. He was serving three hundred and eight years for rape right. and burglary, but like for well, who was the state? Who was the state? Because like, yeah. that's it. Yeah, he <laughs> died in nineteen seventy nine. These happened in nineteen seventy seven. So what? That was two years later. Who's to say he wouldn't have been released again? Because yeah. well, they did exactly. it once, overcrowding, exactly. and he is only there at that point. He was only there for a rape and a burglary, like. Ooh. Yeah, I'm being sarcastic. People, that is a big deal. But like, you, like they let him go after 28 months yeah. for like being convicted of rape. Yeah, That's which he essentially got 30 years for. Yeah, 28 months. Like, come on. And then he, this happened in that time. Like, oh. But I mean, I have to say though, like, kudos to the team of investigators yeah. that never gave up yeah. and never tried to cover it up. 
because they are partially responsible for this. Yes. Because they are the ones that essentially let him escape and this happened. Usually in those cases, there's huge cover-ups and so on and so forth. The butterfly effect or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, kudos to them for, like, standing their ground and doing their fucking job. Well, and doing it right. And doing it right. Domino effect, I think, is what you're trying to say. Yeah. Butterfly effect is, like, a totally different reality. Okay. Well, whatever. (laughs) You essentially got what I was saying. It's so incredibly frustrating, but I mean, karma got him in the end. Yeah. Well, and I think that's all we can kind of hope for is, and yeah, that, it gives me good. hope, like 45 years later, and this case is legitimately solved with DNA. Yeah. That gives me hope that all these other cases out there that don't have answers, all these yeah. other families that don't have closure, uh, as much as it may not give any kind yeah. of like solace to them, or yeah. it's it's maybe there's a very good chance yeah. that one day there will be answers. Yeah. It's just a matter it's, of, are you going to stick around long enough to see it? Yeah. Right? And it's so wild how seriously this was that they took this, that a state of the art girl scouts camp, which had been active for 49 years, has this reputable reputation. They never <coughs> opened it again. Yeah. They were like, Nope, they were yeah. done. It ha- it was open longer than it has been since these murders still. Yeah. Really? Because it's only been 45 years and it was already <clears throat> open for 29, 49. Oh, yeah. I guess so. So, like, still. That's crazy. Yeah. And I, who knows? And to like, think it's still sitting there it's right now today in there. the same state that it was yeah. that night. There's so many, like, paranormal stories about it. There's a, apparently this random black dog that, like, well, you can see the ground, though, and right? people think put... that it's Gene Leroy Hart's yeah. spirit. Like, well, when you put that kind of mystery around yeah. a, a place like that, oh, like yeah. that—that's what it generates, right? So it doesn't surprise me. And the story itself is horrific. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if there's a lot of movies out there that we know about that stemmed from yeah. this incident, right? Oh no, actually, there Hollywood's isn't. always oh. always redoing shit. And... The weird thing yeah. is, is that like nobody's really touched on this there's a couple books written about it they're really fucking hard to find there was one i believe a movie but like that was based on one of those books but again like never heard of it and it's got to be uh because of the whole private property like i wonder if if they're being so private about the property itself they probably don't talk to anybody about it I wouldn't be surprised if it's literally just say sitting there with nobody. Yeah, like it was like bought it like somebody bought it because it didn't want it to go into the wrong hands. Somebody like bought it so that they could keep it safe and then just like with no plan to do anything with it. Yeah, but that's that's what's piqued the curiosity of the public, right? You put a little bit of mystery around something. Um, next month, no, it's June now. It is. It's June now. So sometime this month, actually, there's a new documentary coming out about it. Um, okay. I don't really know much about the documentary. All I know is that a famous actress named Kristen Chinoweth. Chinoweth? Chinoweth. Chinoweth? Yeah. Apparently, she was supposed to be at Camp Scott that, like, for that summer. And something really? happened and she wasn't there. So she's part of this documentary. <sighs> I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. The one from Glee. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. that's that's coming out. So oh, well, now I want to watch, watch it even more. I know. <laughs> but uh, it's like, just a mind fuck. I just have to say, though, like, after doing all the research, because as soon as, like, I've been familiarized with this this case for a really long time. And it and I mean, like, I like our favorite podcasts have done, like, um, morbid's done an episode on yeah. it like case files done an episode on it i'm sure every true crime podcast has now homebrew murder crew has yeah. yes. but like my thing is is that when i started researching it and i started seeing i, I didn't know i've seen the photo of gene leroy hart so many times yeah. but i didn't realize until today that he was indigenous oh really and i it, it kind yeah. of changed how you look at the investigation and yeah. it's it's but at the same time you kind of have to commit they handled it really well considering in 1977 the relationship between yes. the white yeah. man and well and you know if you don't mind if i can add to that um today with 
doing my episode, I had this whole grand gesture in my head about what it was going to be because it is June 1st. And, you know, I did have someone lined up to actually come in and interview. Uh, It didn't happen. That's okay. Uh, But if it would have, it's national uh, begins this month anyway, National Indigenous History Month. And it's funny that I'm sitting here wanting to do this episode and then it falls through. So you're doing this one now. But as you're going through it, it is really important to look at that other side too. Absolutely. Because it's not about... Uh, not acknowledging when the RCMP gets it right. That's no, not what it's about. It, it's about acknowledging that the RCMP isn't perfect no. and that there are a lot of other examples. Like, and thank goodness this is one. Yeah. And 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 it worked how it was supposed to work. Yeah. But and it's funny listening to this a year or two ago when yeah. I didn't have all the knowledge I did about myself and my history. I would have thought about this differently. I would have just exactly. been like, fry the fucker. Oh, yeah. Right? True. Now I'm sitting listening to it, and I'm still like, fry the fucker, because That's he wasn't absolutely. a good guy. He did it. But I now understand what led to mm-hmm. the community aspect of it, and it, it wasn't the community's fault. Right? No, not at it all. It was the embedded trauma that they've had and the, their, their experiences at exactly. that point, especially in 1977 mm-hmm. with what authorities were. Like, it gives me an understanding for that community and how they work. Yeah. And that is exactly the same through all Indigenous communities. Yeah. And and it is. It's not about, you know, what Indigenous want, what, what other people want. It, it's about acknowledging that Indigenous people have a different culture, have a different history. And it's yeah. about starting to acknowledge that. Because I sit here as an Indigenous person and I fully acknowledge that this person was a piece of shit. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. it's been fucking proven. Mm-hmm. I don't care what your race is at the end of the day. No. But it, but what I want to bring to National um, Indigenous History Month is just, and thank you for the segue, is to not focus on what has been going right and to focus on what's been not working and why mm-hmm. and educating ourselves to that. Mm-hmm. Because you really do. It opens your eyes to other people's worlds. And if you're going to sit there and give opinions you have to be willing to open your eyes to other people's worlds to have an educated opinion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I like, and just like to go back to my case here for a minute, like when I was doing the research, when I, I read that, I instantly was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh no. When I but, read that. But was, bad people yeah. are bad people. Oh no, no, I day, totally right? agree. And, and that's why I yeah. felt it was important to include yep. all of that information and I completely... about the two OBSI yeah. investigators. Well, and thank you for correcting me on that too, because I miss that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate so you letting me know yeah. that. So I had a better understanding. Yeah, but like um, in my research, because that became a heavy part of the research that I did today, because like I said, I'd written this episode, but I went back and added so much today. Um, I never found a single article, even back in 1977, that had any kind of like that even mentioned that he was, you know, like that, that suggested that he did it because he was Cherokee or that they believed he did it because he was. Like, I never found that at all. I like, feel like that's become much more of a recent times thing. Because that's why it's I been think labeled, too. right? It's like, been labeled as yeah, racism it or it's just, been labeled, yeah, right? It's just back wrong. in 77. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think tonight proves that we are not biased and we oh. will cover any case out there regardless of our own opinions exactly like it doesn't bother me that you brought me a suspect today that was indigenous what i appreciate you doing is showing giving me an opportunity to kind of speak on why they felt the way that they did yeah and and to point and point that out and i feel like even though what i wanted to do kind of fell through i feel like this was it's giving me goosebumps thinking about. It. I feel like this was important, yeah, as well. Yeah. So thank you for what you brought today, Megan, and thank, thank you for you. saving my ass again. No <laughs> Thanks, Megan. <laughs> Christine. <laughs> All right, so th- that's it. That's the Oklahoma Girl Scouts murder case. So for you sad. Guys. So fucking like all oh, those poor girls. Yeah, and oh, I, I, I will post. 
links in the show notes. Yeah, I want to see pictures of the camp. Yeah. Oh like yeah. No, I've got pictures of the camp. I want to put I've it got... together in my mind because I'm yeah. still going back to Lindsay Lohan and fucking paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's pictures of the camp. Don't yeah. worry, I'll post those. Well, thank you very much, Megan. Thank you everybody for tuning in tonight. I am sorry I didn't bring you my case, but I'll get you on another time. See you on another time. And you can find us on our socials. We're on TikTok at Homebrew Murder Crew. We're on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. And we're on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. You can also feel free to email us if you have any questions, uh, corrections, or cases that you would like any one of us to cover. Please feel free to email us at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Johnny Depp, Depp, Johnny Depp, Depp, Johnny Depp, 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 Johnny Depp, Depp, Depp. You can move. <laughs>